We all want happy, healthy families, and that quest for good health begins at birth. Sadly, many of our nation's infants have a much more difficult journey reaching their first birthday than other infants. African-American babies, for instance, are as much as two and a half times less likely to reach their first birthday than Caucasian babies. This disturbing disparity has given rise to a national forum, a forum wherein healthcare professionals, birth workers, policymakers, and family planning experts share information and ideas to combat the scourge of black infant mortality and maternal morbidity. Welcome to the Gap Podcast Series. Welcome to another episode of the Gap Podcast Series. I'm Lindell, and thank you for downloading and tuning in and whatever you do to support this podcast. I really appreciate it. Today, we're in for a treat with our extraordinary in-studio guest, and he's going to do most of the talking today because he is one brilliant journalist. I appreciate him being on the show, and I value his insights and everything he's going to share. As you guys know, our podcast squarely deals with the issues of health inequities and health disparities, primarily in the space of black infant mortality and black maternal health. But we've expanded our podcast over two seasons because none of the issues regarding black American health really exist in a silo. Over our span of two seasons now, we've kind of taken a broader systems view in understanding healthcare disparities that are at work, especially given that these healthcare disparities, they net out in metrics of heightened amounts of infant mortality and reduced life expectancy. What's troubling to me lately is, and I got to figure out a way to determine how we can handle this is I want to encourage more athletes to use their voice and influence to illuminate matters of health disparities and access to respectful care right here in the United States. Now, as a former athlete myself and someone who grew up in Los Angeles, I know the power that voices of athletes can have. And even when you look at it historically, particularly black athletes, we've been advertising spokesperson, pitchmen for years. You know, as a kid, I remember Willie Mays pitching Camel cigarettes and Maury Wills for the Dodgers pitching dry cleaners and Elgin Baylor was a carnation baby. And how can we ever forget Simpson running through airports for Hertz? And today you can't watch a basketball game without seeing Barkley pitching Capital One and Miller pitching Wendy's and Curry trying to sell you NFTs and O'Neal pitching car insurance and printers. And you got Jason Tatum selling Doritos. But with the life expectancy for black folks declining and maternal morbidity and mortality rising and the sheer fact that we're dying at higher rates of heart disease and cancer and chronic illnesses are taking us out from gestation to social security age, I want to know how to get more athletes using their voice and their influence to shine the light on these issues of healthcare disparities. Or maybe that's just Lindell being naive. But for all these reasons and more, I'm honored to have this extraordinary journalist and brilliant young man I've come to have great respect for on this episode. He is a beat writer for America's team, and that would be the Dallas Cowboys. I love his work. I love the way he takes care of his family, looks after his dad and his amazing and accomplished daughter, who I want him to tell me all about. And I'm excited to have him on the show today to talk about the confluence of sports in America and activism and a range of topics. I'd like to welcome University of Texas graduate Clarence Hill to the Gap Podcast Series. Welcome, Clarence Hill. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that intro. I'm kind of flattered, I'm humbled, and I'll give you your money later. 
Yeah, man. Well, you know, being a beat writer for the Cowboys, <laughs> man, I, you know, we were talking before the show and you were like saying you're about to make that trip out to Southern California. But as you pointed out so eloquently, you're not going to L.A. You're going to Oxnard, which is a long way from Los Angeles. No, and, and you know, it's 60 miles from the airport, I think, to Oxnard. But with L.A. traffic, that's two hours. You know, in Oxnard, it's more than just 60 miles from L.A. geographically. It's right. about 6,000 miles from L.A., <laughs> really, when you think about it. Yeah, no doubt. It's just a different world. It really is, man. So I do want to talk to you a bit about kind of your work. Certainly your work as beat writer for the Cowboys. But before we get into that, man, tell me about your trajectory that kind of led you to this place of being a writer and a journalist. I really like to hear about that. Oh, wow. Well, like most kids, you know, I grew up in a, wanting to be an athlete. I grew up loving sports. Both my parents are teachers, so I was always good in school, and school was always important, but I grew up loving sports and consuming newspapers and watching sports and reading about sports, playing sports daily. Grew up in a small town of Central Texas, and I was in the streets playing ball, basketball, football, everything year-round. But, you know, being from Texas, you know, football was my favorite sport. So I, I grew up wanting to play for the Dallas Cowboys. I wanted to play football for the Dallas Cup. wanted to be Tony Dorsett, so to speak. And th those were my heroes at that time. And, you know, life has a way of turning your dreams, maybe not how you thought they would be, but how they should be. And so I don't play for the Cowboys, but I'm at Texas Stadium, or well, it used to be Texas Stadium. It was a Texas Stadium, AT&T Stadium, every Sunday chronicling the exploits of the Cowboys. You know, I, I went to college. With hopes of being an accountant, my dad was a math teacher. I started dabbling at the school paper, and uh, it became a labor of love. It became something that, you know, I've always consumed newspapers, and, and I, you know, thought I knew what I was talking about, and I started writing for the school paper at the University of Texas and turned into a career. Wow. What was kind of the impact of, uh, on you personally of having to write about Marion Barber? You know, I knew Marion, and, you know, obviously it's a story that I had exclusively, but it's tough just knowing him, how he was as a player, you know, the things he's dealt with since his career. You know, it, it's disappointing. You know, the good news is that it's come out and it's good news that he didn't harm himself. You know, it wasn't any foul play. But it, the reason he died raises more questions than answers to me. You know, they came out and said it was, you know, he died of a, a heat stroke in his house in May. When it wasn't that hot, at least not like it is now, none of that makes any sense. You know, it's just a tough situation because, you know, there's so many players and so many athletes were dying so young, and his was, again, senseless. It didn't have to happen. You know, as you know, I'm an L.A. kid, so, you know, I grew up on the Oakland Raiders, and, you know, Raider Nation is ubiquitous. You know, I jokingly tell people that you got to have, like, a mental health problem to be a Raider fan because, you know, Raider fans are just of a different ilk, man. But I remember last year, man, uh, just being really just I felt something in my heart about the young man from the Raiders that was involved in that car collision mm -hmm. where two folks died. And there was another situation in spring of this year, I believe, where a kid that had formerly played for TCU died on 75 on Central Expressway mm -hmm. in a car crash. It just seems that. And maybe there are outlier examples, I don't know, Clarence, but it seems like so many young athletes meet with such a tragic end. Yeah, it's been a lot. And you had a, another athlete for the Baltimore Ravens who I think he OD'd. And, you know, you had the kid from um, the Pittsburgh State, the quarterback who was at Ohio State, 
who passed away as well. Haskins, right? Yeah. Yeah. Dwayne Haskins, you know. So it's hard to, they're all different reasons. It seemed like it's, you know, all together, you know, there's not one thing that you can point to. You know, obviously with the Raiders incident and certainly with Haskins, and I don't know if the, I think the Toscali on the TCU guy was, I think he was drinking as well. And so, you know, certainly you put alcohol and driving and all that other stuff. That's one thing. The thing with Barber, though, it wasn't alcohol. It wasn't drugs. How old was he? 37, 38. What? Yeah. Oh, man. man. When you, and again, forgive my naivete on this, man, but when guys, when young players become a professional athlete, do they just have like a, an entourage, like a cohort of people that are just kind of hanging around them all the time, trying to influence them for good or bad? Or is that just kind of one of those, you know, myths that gets played out in sports documentaries? <laughs> I think it's a little bit of everything. You know, I think it's both. Because some of them, they're the influencer. Yeah, you know, exactly. You know, People are following them, right? right? Yeah. They're, they're the <laughs> yeah, one, you know. And, so, and, you know, there's some that can be influenced. But, you know, it's gone on since the beginning. You go back to Ali and half yeah. Jim Brown. I mean, that, that's been the case to a certain extent. And so it's just how do you navigate it how do you handle it you know and some people get chewed up by the system some people use the system and overcome it you know it's I don't think that there's one thing that you can point to I mean just looking at Dallas and you could have said that Michael Irving was a classic case of could have been that but he survived and it came out the other end yeah he did he could have easily you know been that he, he survived and came out the other end yeah because didn't he come out of what's that place in uh Central Florida, the muck or something no, like that? No, he's, he's, from, he, he's from Miami. Okay. Yeah, no, he's from Miami. No Central Florida for him at all. Oh, okay, okay. I want to shift gears a little bit and just ask you, man, like, what is the role that sports, that professional sports plays in kind of the tableau of American society? What is the role of professional sports? How do you see it? Sports and society, I mean... The influences are so great, and they've always been great, especially for the black community. And you go back, you know, and there was a time when that was considered the way out. Stay out of games, be in sports. That, that was the, the message, you know. If you stay in sports, you stay out of trouble. That's still part of I mean, I, I know raising my daughters, I try to keep them active. You know, keeping them active, they're in sports, they're in a lot of different things. But you stay in sports, you don't have time to get in trouble or in the streets or whatever else you want to call it. You know, and I think that was the case when I was growing up. I was always busy doing something. You stay busy. And sports was part of that. But, I mean, even today, I mean, with social media, you have sports, you have rappers, you have movie stars, you have entertainers. They're of that ilk for people to look up to, kids to look up, to be influenced by, to be in awe of. And and so I think that they certainly have that celebrity status, especially the LeBron James. I mean, everybody's not created equal. Every athlete is not the same. They don't have the same influence as other athletes. It's only the Jordans, the LeBron James, the big name stars who really have that type of impact. But certainly it's still there, you know, and the way kids, even adults, you know, hang on their every word, hang on or today on their every tweet and everything they do on social media. And social media is such a big part of the influencer game today. We worked on a, uh, on a series, we developed a series, a four-part series for a major streaming service about the history of the Houston Astrodome. What city did you grow up in in Central Texas? I grew up in Schulenburg, which is like 90 miles from Houston. Okay. Did you ever go to the Astrodome when you were a of kid? Of course. Okay. When we worked on the Astrodome, 
series, one of the things that we dealt with was the craziness around how Houston got a team. For years, Houston, you know, they had AAA ball club, forget the name of it, but for years they were trying to get a major league team. Colt 45? When they played at the stadium before the Astrodome was built, they were called a Colt 45. Okay. But there was another team that played there during the 50s. But the point in that whole crazy thing, Clarence, is that back then, like 40s, 50s, whatever, coming into the early 60s, you weren't considered a major U.S. city unless you had a major league sports franchise. Right. Nobody considered you serious. And that was one of the main things that we just kind of uncovered working on the Astrodome story was that Judge Hoffines, who was Roy Hoffines, was the county judge then that kind of led that effort. That was like this main push that everybody was saying is that Houston's never going to be a world city until we get a major league baseball franchise. We have to have a major league baseball franchise here. And I just thought about that in the context of a way that do cities interpret who they are and what they are based on their sports franchise? Is there kind of a connection? There's definitely a connection. One reason why San Antonio has been dying and, you know, for NFL franchise, you know, they, they want to be t- Kansas City. You know, they want an NBA franchise, you know, and they feel some kind of way in Kansas City that they have a baseball team, a football team, but they don't have a hockey team or a basketball team. You know, in San Antonio, you know, they got a basketball team. And, and you know, if you've been spent some time in San Antonio, that's like their child. You know, you don't say anything about the Spurs. You don't say anything about the Riverwalk because it's so tied to the city. That's their identity, you know, to a certain extent. That's part of their identity. Alamo, the Riverwalk, and the Spurs. Yeah. Well, that's all they have. And they've been denied, you know, other big-time sports franchises. But, yeah, I mean, you look at the major cities, and they have the major sports. And that tells you whether you a first-class city or big-time city if you have all the sports. And so there's definitely a connection with that. One reason why New Orleans wanted to get a basketball team back, you know, because they didn't have a basketball team for a while after the Jazz left it with Utah, you know, and they needed to get a one, you know, Charlotte, you know, they needed to get a basketball team. And, you know, these you know, Nashville, that was important for them to get a football team and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, it makes a huge difference. I mean, just think about Arizona before they got the Cardinals. Right. <laughs> yeah, they had the Suns, right? Yeah. Then that was it, yeah. And before the Diamondbacks, yeah, before they got a baseball yeah, team. Pretty, it was a long time before they yeah, got all that. So yeah. that. There's definitely a connection with a city's identity and certainly how we look at that city, especially American cities, whether they're, you know, a first-class city or a world-class city, however you want to call it, their relations to a top sports franchise or one of the major sports franchises. Yeah, it, it changes kind of the trajectory of, you're right, of how the city is perceived. Because, you know, as a West Coast kid, when Seattle lost the Supersonics, I mean, that was just catastrophic for them, man, because as a West Coast kid, the Lakers, man, you know, they make that northern road trip, man. They're playing Portland and Seattle and the Sonics were just kind of like, you know, woven. It's weird that Seattle doesn't have an NBA team, you know, and what's kind of been the impact of them losing, you know, their NBA franchise. So I guess that goes exactly what you're saying. Of course, L.A. is the outlier because... They didn't need an NFL franchise for so long because they were still L.A. and there's still so much to do. And I don't know if the fanaticism that goes along with sports is the same in L.A. as it is other places. I mean, you can tell by the Lakers parade. I mean, I don't think anybody showed up, but that's a whole other story. All right, we're going to go to break. You're listening to the Gap podcast series. And today my guest is the extraordinary Clarence Hill. Stay with us. Thank you. 
name is Kaya, and I'm almost a teenager. I have a real problem. My daddy and my grandfather love pie. For my daddy, it's apple. For my poppy, it's anything lemon. But they won't bring me any pie. I don't think that's fair. They always go to Judy Pie on Main Street in Grapevine, where Miss Judy and her bakers make 20 different kinds of pies and cinnamon rolls on the weekend. But I don't get any. They tell me I can have pie when I'm a teenager, like pie is only for grown-ups or something. Can someone please call my daddy and my poppy and tell them I need pie? In the meantime, you can go to JudyPie.com, or if you're in Grapevine, Texas, visit Judy Pie on Main Street. And if my daddy or my poppy are there, tell them that Kaya wants a piece of pie. Welcome back. You are listening to the Gap Podcast Series, and today our in-studio guest is Clarence Hill, beat writer for America's team. Oh my God. And I've already been reprimanded by Mr. Hill because he says I wear as a badge of honor that in all the years I've lived in Texas, I've never gone to a cowboy game. So he is like appropriately reprimanded me for that. But, you know, in the first half of the show, you know, he never offered up a ticket or anything like that. <laughs> he just like reprimanded me for not going to a game. I'm like, okay, you're going to do me like that. Well, I'm just going to say, I don't work for the Cowboys. I work for the Fort Worth Star Telegraph. So, <laughs> so, so Jerry Jones did not give me free tickets. Oh, man. Okay. I want to just kind of switch gears and I want to ask you about the period of time when you were covering the NFL and. Kaepernick and Eric Reed, you know, were kneeling to shine a light on the way that police treat black folk and poor folk in America. Just from your perspective as a writer, what was kind of the tenor of how players were kind of seeing that or looking at or perceiving that? What do you remember about that time? Well, you know, and maybe I'm jumping too far, but everybody's not meant to be an activist. Everybody, you know, don't understand the messaging, don't can't handle the messaging. Everybody can't do that. And I think that there's some expectation that everybody's supposed to be Kaepernick. Everybody can't speak to the cause. You don't want everybody speaking to the cause. Boy, that's some brilliant insight right there, man. And not everybody has their same connection to it as well. That's brilliant, man. I mean, so in the locker room, you have, I mean, everybody come from different places in this. And the thing about football, and you know, because this is not just about football, it's about sports. The problem with football players, as opposed to the basketball players and baseball players, is that the careers are so short. What's the average length of a career? Three, four years. You know, and it's 53 guys. And if, if all things equal and you are a problem player or they perceive you to be a problem player, I'm going to take the guy that's not a problem. Or I'm going to keep the guy that's not a problem. So whether that's real or imagined, it's the elephant in the room a lot of times with players and when they make decisions on just like, which is why they don't have guaranteed contracts. I mean, you know, football players don't have the power that other unions have because players cannot stay out and fight because of the short career span and because they don't make the same money. Even the top players, the players in other basketball and baseball make. So... As much as some want to support, they also want to support their family. You know, and, and Ground Zero said with the Cowboys, when Jerry Jones has threatened the players, his team, that if you kneel, you won't play, 
I don't think he would have benched Dak or Zeke, but that threat was there. Okay, let me make sure I'm really getting this. Are you saying that there's kind of a a strata of athletes that because of accomplishments or money or whatever, that they're kind of untouchable? Yes. But beneath them, you're subject to being invited to leave at any point in time. Like Kaepernick. I mean, McMool Abdul Roof was blackballed. Yeah. I mean, players have been getting blackballed for a number of reasons for years, you know, since the beginning of time. There's a fine line that some, you know, Eric Reed should still be in the league. He should be. You know, the number of guys, who kneelers, who probably should still be in the league, but they weren't difference-making players, and so nobody's missing them. I want to get back and just kind of wrap up our show today with just a couple of more questions to benefit of your thinking on. And the first is, do you feel that black athletes carry a heavier burden in terms of the perceived responsibility to speak out on social issues or to be activists? What are your thoughts about that? I would say that black people do. You know, I grew up in a time when you were taught that, you know, you represent more than just yourself. You know, and I think that as a black journalist, I know I feel an inherent responsibility to speak to issues and write about issues and ask questions about issues that people are not going to ask about. If we don't ask it, who's going to ask it? So I think that there's some inherent burden on us as black people that we care about more than just ourselves. It's never been about an individual thing. At least I didn't grow up that way. And I don't think most of us have grown up that way. It was always about, as long as I'm okay, my family's okay, I don't care what happens to everybody else. That's never been my mindset. And so I think that there's, you know, most black people I knew that I rock with, you know, there's a burden, there's a feeling of caring about issues because of how it affects the whole. So I think that some athletes certainly feel that way. And a lot of athletes certainly feel that way. I don't know if it's... Overly bigger burden on them. But, you know, they say heavy as they had to wear the crown. I mean, I think that there's some expectation that when you have a larger platform, right. you should use it and do more with it because you can have a greater impact. I think there's some expectation yeah. because of the platform you have, you should use it. You should do something with that. You should do something to help other people with that platform. You know, bless people with the gift that you've been given. I agree with you. I feel strongly that any African-American, any black person with a platform where their voice is being amplified, they should use that platform for good to help shine the light on issues that can impact the greater good. So last question, I'll get you out on this one. How would you suggest that us, us meaning people that are filmmakers like myself, that are producers, that want to use the power of visual storytelling, of documentary film, to really shine the light on these broad issues that are impacting Black America. How do we bridge to athletes to help leverage their voice in supporting these issues that impact kind of a larger tableau, a larger spectrum of people? I mean, how do we do that? You got to get the right athlete. I mean, I, I think that there's so many athletes who are trying to do more things. Right. You know, you got Kevin Durant. And, you know, we talk about, you know, Kevin Durant, LeBron, and they're doing their own documentaries and they're doing their own media and they do care. It's just a matter of, of getting to the right one and, you know, speaking to their passions to a certain extent. Right. And obviously they have to care, you know, about the issues that you care about. But, it, you know, it's again, I think it's more than just the athlete. 
it affects so many people, and I think that the burden, whether it's not just the athlete, but the media in general, and black minority, people of color in healthcare, there's so many other ways to get around it to help get the word out. Certainly, not just actors, but you know, musicians, artists, and especially in the social media age, you know, and everybody has a platform and has, you know, so much influence, but. You know, just as far as the athletes are concerned, again, it depends on the athlete, you know, it depends on the sport. I think that, you know, right now that the NBA players have a great influence and mainly because you see their faces more so. You know, the thing about football is they're in a helmet, <laughs> you know, and, right. and so they're definitely more recognizable. And then we talked earlier about them having the guarantees so they have more security to do things and most often more money. Wow. Well, I want to give you the floor and uh, give you opportunities since you are a um, sports writer and a journalist and all around like pretty super smart guy. I want to just kind of give you the floor. Anything you want to comment on based upon whether something I've asked you or something I haven't just you got the floor, Mr. Hill. Anything you want to say? Didn't know I had a going to have a monologue or a prologue. It's a prologue. That's, this would be the monologue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You going to quote some Shakespeare for no, us? No, no, no Shakespeare. James Weldon Johnson, no, maybe. No. Langston Hughes. <laughs> I just think that I'm with you on, I think that activism is important. I think that we all play a role in spreading the message and certainly speaking to issues. I think that, I, like I said, I grew up with that understanding. I don't know if it's a burden, but it's a certainly understanding. And I wouldn't call it a burden because it's what I want to do. You know, it's... I often, and we often go the extra mile, you know, to cover stories, to do things that are important to us, or important to our community, things that are not on my beat or whatever else. Or, and I just think that that's it's on all of us is all I want to say is that it's not just athletes. It's on your everyday life. What do you do, whether it's your church, your job, whatever else, you have an opportunity. We all have an opportunity to make an impact on certainly the health issues like you know, when you talk about going to the small towns in Texas and talking about the mortality rates, because it's something you care about. And if we don't do, who's going to do it? Very well said. If we don't do it, who's going to do it? Well, we've come to an end of another episode of the Gap Podcast Series. I've been on today with the extraordinary Clarence Hill, writer, journalist, and the only person who's ever been on my show that's been half the show giving me a hard time. But that's all right. He's it's called love. It's called we kid because we care. He is welcome back anytime. <laughs> You're listening to the Gap Podcast Series. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Gap Podcast Series is produced by Limeville Entertainment in association with Sagasse Media Group. Also, be sure to visit us online at 365plusone.org. That's 365plusone.org.